This passage comes from Isaiah 11, 1 through 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. The second passage this morning is from Psalm 72. Force the rulers of Tarshish and, the island, and of the islands to pay taxes to him. Make the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. Make other rulers bow down and all nations serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. reasons that we're doing these Advent uh, uh, readings. Let me ask, how many of you uh, grew up in a, in a church or Christian tradition where you celebrated Advent? Do you recognize Advent? So maybe about a half of us. I did not. Uh, so it's kind of a, a new idea for me. Um, uh, but the reason that we're doing it is because um, Christmas in December, uh, for many of us, ends up being an incredibly hectic month. Anybody? And it struck me like, like four or five years ago, you know, that the time of the year that should maybe be the most peaceful and the most reflective ends up being one of the most stressful couple weeks of my entire life. Anybody else? Uh, and so some of you are students and you've got finals and papers and other folks are starting to get stressed about family visiting or you're buying lots of presents or whatever, right? Or you have way too many Christmas parties to go to. Uh, it ends up being, it can be kind of a stressful time of year. So uh, Advent is this time where, where historically uh, much of the Christian church has said we're going to mark off these four weeks leading up to Christmas 
to remind ourselves of a few things. One, that there was a time when people were waiting for Christ to come. Looking forward, waiting, longing, praying. And so we put ourselves back into that time as people who wait. But also, also reminds us that we are a people who are waiting for Christ to return. Amen? So we're also a people who wait. But we can forget that. We can live kind of in the moment or day to day. And so Advent is a time that not only prepares us to celebrate Christmas, it's a time that reminds us that we are awaiting people. That we are a people who are looking forward to the day when Christ returns, restores all things, and we live under the rule and the reign, the visible rule and the reign of God, of God for all time. So that's why we're doing this. That's why we're reading these readings, uh, these scripture readings during our services leading up towards Christmas. It's also why on our website you can find each week different set of prayers and readings, some devotional readings, some scripture readings. So, um, so take advantage of that. Some of you who feel like you have no margin in your life right now to reflect, take at least five minutes and grab some of those scripture passages, some of those prayers off our website, and, and allow Advent, allow this time of waiting to kind of sink into your soul. Does that make sense? Okay, okay, all right. Uh, open your Bibles uh, to, to Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 16. Uh, before we get into our passage uh, this morning, two quick things. One, and uh, Michelle Dodson mentioned this last week, uh, Drake Elementary is collecting these dolls. What are they called? I forget. Tiana, Princess Tiana dolls. We had an example last week. We don't this week. Uh, they're, apparently they're like $10 each, and, it's, and, and they do like a Christmas gifts for kids at the school here. Um, and so they're, they're looking for a few more donations. I think they're looking for like 10 or 11 more dolls to be covered. Each doll is, is $10. so like 110 bucks. So if you're in a position where you could uh, donate this morning so that some of these children at the school could have that uh, as a Christmas present, uh, please stop by the welcome table uh, after the service today, and they're going to direct you to Miss Mary, who's uh, one of the workers here at the school. She's collecting. She, at this point, is paying for out of her own pocket as the custodian. So it'd be cool if she didn't have to do that. All right? Yeah? Some of you? Are you noting? Okay. Um, the other thing is, Tyler, can we put up the, the schedule for the coming weeks? I just wanted to let you know kind of where we are and where we're going. So next Sunday, we're taking a break from our Matthew sermon series to do um, this uh, Road to Bethlehem production. Um, when, when are we doing setup, Rebecca, for that? Friday at 12. So if you happen to be one of those people who doesn't have like a 9 to 5 job and you could come this Friday at 12 to be in the building here, we're going to be transforming the stage into this pretty apparently amazing set, right? Uh, Jonathan Dixon has apparently done a phenomenal job creating the set for this. So if you have some time and could join us here on Friday at 12 to get set up for the road to Bethlehem. So that's next week. Um, we're going to have some food afterwards, right, Gina? So if you want to contribute to some food for that, talk to Gina after the service. So just kind of a, a celebratory service. Uh, then the 19th, I'm preaching a sermon called A Profane Christmas. That's all I'm going to say about that. So show up for that, show up for that, show up for that. Uh, 26th, uh, combined worship service in Logan Square. Um, and then the first Sunday of the year, we'll be back here uh, for our Complete Transformation series. And we're looking at one of the kind of pivotal, central passages of the entire book. This is sort of where Matthew hinges the entire gospel is on this passage. And it's around this question, who do you say that I am? 
Okay? So please be here for that. Invite some folks to join you. On the 9th, it's our Vision Sunday. We do this as a church every year. We kind of recalibrate ourselves. We look at our mission together, the mission that we say every single week, and then we say, okay, now how are we going to implement that this year? So it's going to be kind of a big picture sermon with some, with some very practical things that we're all going to be kind of contributing to this year. So please, please be here for that. And please, please bring some people with you on that Sunday to Vision Sunday. People who you know who don't know uh, Jesus, people who aren't connected with the church, bring them with you on Vision Sunday because they're not just going to get kind of the regular, this is what church is about. They're going to get some very practical, this is how we're going to be serving our neighborhood this week. This, this coming year. This is how we're going to be growing deeper together. Is it? Some very specific practical stuff. Uh, and then the next three weeks, the last three weeks in, in January, we're kind of back to our Matthew series, but we're, we're going to lump together three massive themes. So first is Jesus and power, then it's Jesus and money, then it's Jesus and love. Okay, we're going to take large chunks of Matthew and look at these very uh, big themes. We have a special guest coming on the 16th, someone who I have an incredible amount of respect for, and that's, again, all I'm going to say about that for now. Uh, but it's it going to be one of those Sundays where we're going to get, um, we're going to go at it pretty hard. Power, privilege, what does Jesus have to say about these things? So uh, if you don't like those kind of things, come anyways. If you like kind of conflict and, you know, like that kind of stuff, you'll love that Sunday. So, um, so does that help you know where we're going as a church? Kind of a snapshot? Great. Okay, so that's, that's, where, that's where we're going the next little bit. Uh, Matthew chapter 15, verses 29 through uh, chapter 16, verse 12. Let me read this passage to you. Matthew chapter 15, verse 29. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed. They were amazed and they, when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry or, may they, or they may collapse along the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took the seven loaves and the fish, and when he had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate were 4,000 besides women and children. After Jesus had sent the crowd away, he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. 
Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is the word of God. Uh, So let me do um, uh, just a couple things this morning. I'm going to give you just a a couple minutes of background on this uh, passage, and then I'm going to give you just kind of three themes uh, that I think emerge from this passage. And I'm going to keep it as simple as possible today, because again, Christmas coming, a lot on your mind, busy people, right? So simple, I'm going to keep it simple, simple, simple. In fact, every one of my three themes is just the exact same sentence, just repeated three times, okay? So... I think you can remember it. All right. Uh, so some, some, some background here before we get to the first of these three themes. This is Jesus' last interaction in Galilee. Let's go ahead and put that slide up, um, Tyler. Uh, most of Jesus' ministry up until this point, most of uh, the interactions, the healings, the miracles, the teachings have all been in the region of Galilee, so kind of on the, north, uh, uh, the, the northern end of Palestine, of, of the nation of Israel. Um, so he's been around the Sea of Galilee. He's been in some of these different towns that you see up around the Sea of Galilee. And this is, is Jesus' last interaction now in Galilee, kind of on his home turf. Our, our next passage, Jesus is going to go just a little bit farther north, and then he's going to start slowly making his way south to Jerusalem, which doesn't show up on the map, but is right next to Bethlehem. The rest of the book of Matthew is Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, Jesus making his way to the cross. And we're going to start to see this uh, repeatedly throughout the rest of, of, of the book of Matthew. Um, does this passage sound a little bit familiar to you guys? <laughs> does it sound familiar? Uh, Jesus has fed people before, right? How many? 5,000. Uh, also, also, Jesus has had a very similar interaction with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? where he's been asked a very similar questions. So why does Matthew, why does Matthew include these two massive feedings right next to each other? He includes the, the 5,000 and then just a few paragraphs later, this feeding of the 4,000. Why, as the author of this, does he hold these two things together? Well, one, it happened. <laughs> We've seen this throughout Matthew, that Matthew includes these details that really don't make a whole lot of sense, that kind of actually stand out as odd, unless they actually happened, Right? So Jesus fed a lot of people, about 9,000 plus people. So Matthew includes that. But some scholars think that there's another reason that Jesus includes this, and I I tend to to think that they're right. Um, Some scholars think that the first feeding, the feeding of the 5,000, was predominantly a Jewish crowd, okay? And the feeding of the 4,000 was primarily a Gentile crowd. Why do they think that? Because the, the, the passages immediately preceding ours that uh, Michelle Dodson preached about last week are Jesus teaching about um, unclean and clean and kind of subverting the entire sort of Jewish expectation of how one earns righteousness, right? And then this kind of cryptic interaction 
uh, with a Gentile woman. You remember her? She has a daughter who's dying, right? And she reaches out to Jesus. So Matthew includes these two uh, interactions, this kind of radical teaching and then this interaction with this Gentile woman right before the feeding of the 4,000. So some scholars say that it kind of all goes together. This is a group of Gentiles that Jesus is now interacting with. Now, there's a couple other little pieces here. The word for baskets in this passage, the feeding of 4,000, is a more general word for basket, whereas the word for basket that Matthew uses in the feeding of the 5,000 is a very specifically Jewish word. Does that make sense? Right? So two different kinds of words. And in fact, at the end of our passage, when Jesus is in the, in the boat, kind of going back and forth about yeast with the disciples, he uses both words. He says, if you think back, remember back to the feeding of the 5,000, he uses the word basket, this more Jewish word. And then when he talks about the feeding of the 4,000 in that same passage, he uses this more general word. So again, scholars look at that and they say, ah, it seems like in this account, Jesus is, is interacting with a group of Gentiles. And there's some clues in the passage that the actual geography, where they were along the Lake of Galilee, would have been more of a Gentile region. Is that way too much background information for you? Some of you like that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, I, I like that kind of stuff. And it's actually going to become, uh, I think, relevant here in just a minute. So, um, Okay, here's our first point. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. Let's say that together. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. And so you've got to put the emphasis on the everyone because like I said, my other two points are the exact same sentence. <laughs> the emphasis is just in a different place, all right? So again, you're going to walk out of here today remembering that sentence. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. Um, I think that it's likely in this feeding that there were both Jews and Gentiles present. I think although it was probably a predominantly Gentile group of folks in the 4,000, certainly the disciples were there. They were Jews. We know that uh, Jesus' disciples included other folks besides just the 12 apostles, some women who followed them, and these tended to be Jewish folks as well. So I think in this moment, people who are observing this are both Jews and Gentiles. Why does that matter? Um, Let's put the Isaiah passage up. Uh, I've said this before, that for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, there was this very strong expectation, this strong hope that one day a Messiah would come. This is uh, in line with the passage that Josh read uh, to us this morning for our Advent reading. There was this hope that one day God was going to liberate God's people from exile. And when that happened, Rome would be defeated, or whatever power uh, happened to be in possession of the land at the time, Rome would be defeated, the temple would be cleansed, uh, and the exiles would return. Those who'd been forced from the land would return. That was the very specific hope that the Jewish people had. When the Messiah of God comes, when God rescues his people, these things are going to happen. So look at this passage from Isaiah. This would have been one of the very well-known passages that people hung on to for hope. And, And think about this in terms of the future. People are reading this and think, one day this will happen. The desert and the parched land will be made glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with a vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Now listen, listen, listen. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened. 
and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now leave that up there, Tyler, and listen to our passage this morning from the very beginning. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the mute, and many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. Now that would be enough to bring this to mind, but then watch what Matthew does. He repeats it in verse 31. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. You see this. So if you imagine yourself as a Jewish person on that day seeing these things happen, you understand that this would have come to mind. You understand that this great hope, this collective memory that one day God was going to to, to act on behalf of God's people, God was going to rescue us from exile, and the evidence of that would be blind people could see, mute people could talk, lame people could walk, crippled people would be made well. It couldn't just be some schmoes showing up saying, hey, it's me, I'm your Messiah. No, there was going to be evidence. People people knew how to differentiate between false messiahs and real messiahs. There had been a lot of false messiahs already. Did you know that? There had been a lot of rebels who had shown up before Jesus saying, let's go. Let's take on Rome. You know where they were? Dead. Crucified. They were dead. So there had to be evidence. There had to be signs that this was God's messiah. This was God's rescuer, liberator. These things would happen. And now Matthew says, he makes it clear, he repeats it. These things are happening. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, as we put ourselves in that Jewish mindset that when people are observing this, they rejoice, Matthew says. They worship, what does Matthew say? The God of Israel. That's their response to seeing these miracles. That makes sense, right? They worship the God of Israel. Why? Because the exile is over. The exile is over. Now, 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 look, it's not just that a few people can walk. That's great. It's not just that a few blind people can now see. That's great. These things, though, people understand they are evidence of something bigger and greater. It's not just that a few people have been healed. It's that these things are evidence that God is now rescuing God's people. The exile is over. You see that? So when people are worshiping God, it's not just, wow. This is great. Some people have been healed. No, no. It's God is rescuing us. So what does that mean? Oh, Rome's probably going to be defeated. The temple's going to be cleansed. The exiles are going to return home. That would have been the natural instinct in that moment. God is rescuing us from exile. And so, of Of course, of course, of course, they praise the God of Israel because the exile in their mind is over. For the average Jewish person that day, the the fundamental problem with the world was out there. The fundamental problem with the world was out there. And once that was addressed, once Rome was defeated, once the exiles were returned home, then then things would be as they should be. For the average person, for the average Jewish person, the fundamental problem was out there. God needed to act out there, needed to defeat our enemies, needed to return the exiles home. The fundamental problem was out there. 
But I think there were a lot of Gentiles in the crowd that day as well. I think probably mostly Gentiles in the crowd that day. Who are the Gentiles? These are folks who live around the Jews, right? We're in Galilee. We're around the Sea of Galilee. So these are folks who know the Jewish tradition, the Jewish religion. These are people, frankly, who are used to being on the outside. Now, you could convert to, to, to Judaism, but it wasn't particularly easy. And it wasn't done all that often. And if you weren't a Jew, then you were not able to worship God in the temple. You were not able to participate in the worship of God in the way that the Jewish people could. You, you understand that? So the Gentile folks, remember where they are, they're around the Sea of Galilee, they, they understand the Jewish tradition, there's probably a synagogue down the road that they've seen Jewish people go into worship. They are used to being on the outside. They're outsiders, right? And they respond to this with joy as well. They respond in worship. Why? Why? Our passage tells us that uh, Jesus is compassionate. Jesus shows compassion. He looks at this crowd and he has compassion on them. And I think this group of Gentiles, who probably have never really interacted with a, a, a Jewish rabbi like Jesus before, I think they are compelled by Jesus' compassion. The, the, the word for compassion here, it's a, it's a word that kind of comes up from your guts. You know, it, 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 it's the kind of emotion that you don't choose to have. It's just there. Jesus, Jesus is feeling something at the depths of himself for this Gentile crowd. He has compassion that pours out of him for these outsiders. And for those who are used to being on the outside, I think, I think they are attracted to that. I think they're compelled by that. The good news is for me as well. So they worship the God of Israel as well. This is a crowd that's been so compelled by the compassion of Jesus that they've been with him for three days and haven't eaten. You see that? I mean, would you follow somebody for three days and not, not eat anything? <laughs> Come on, be honest. But I bet you would. I bet you would. If your whole life you lived as an outsider, believing that there was this barrier between you and God, you and worship of God, you and being accepted and loved by God, and all of a sudden someone shows up who speaks on God's behalf and is so moved by compassion for you, I bet you follow that person. I bet you'd go without food for three days to hear what that person has to say. No, God is for you too. The kingdom is for you too. No, 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 you're not an outsider any longer. I bet most of us will follow that person for three days. And so, and so, and so, like, like, like the Jewish response, they, of course, they worship. Now, if the, Jewish, if the Jewish instinct is to understand the fundamental problem with the world to be out there, for the, for the Gentile person in this crowd, I, I think that the fundamental problem uh, in the world for them is in here. There's something wrong with me that I'm not acceptable to God. There's something wrong with me that keeps me from entering into worshiping the God of Israel. 
So for the Jew, if the fundamental problem with the world is out there, God needs to rescue us. God needs to defeat Rome. God needs to bring home the exiles. You see, I think for the average Gentile in the crowd, the fundamental problem with the world is in here. And this is why they rejoice, why they worship. Because, because what? Because Jesus is saying, no, no, God is for you too. The fundamental problem is being addressed by Jesus for these Gentiles. But, 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 God's salvation through Jesus was much bigger than either the Jews or the Gentiles could fully grasp in that moment. Here's what I mean. The Jews believed that God was rescuing them from exile by defeating their enemies. That's how it was supposed to go. Let's get an army together. Let's go after Rome. That's what God's going to do. They believed that God was, was bringing them out of exile, was rescuing them by defeating their enemies. But salvation was so much bigger than that. Salvation, salvation would defeat an enemy much bigger than Rome. Right? So salvation, watch this, so salvation was actually going to begin not out there, but in here. Salvation for for these Jewish people was going to be not simply in doing something out there. There's actually something in here that had to be addressed as well. It wasn't just the evil out there, the wickedness out there. There was something here as well. Does that make sense? So for the, for the Jews, there's this excitement about what God is doing, but, 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 their vision isn't big enough. The Gentiles, on the other hand, they see Jesus acting on their behalf. They rejoice. They accept this. They're now being brought into God's family. But for them as well, salvation was going to be much, much bigger. It wasn't just that God was doing something inside them to make them acceptable to God. It's that God was going to pull them into a reconciled community with the very people who had excluded them before. Their view of God's salvation also was limited. It wasn't just that God was doing something in here. It was that God was going to pull me out here to be in relationship with people who, frankly, are my enemies. You see that? Both of them hear Jesus' words. Both of them see Jesus' action. Both of them worship God. But my guess is in both cases, their view of what God was doing, their view of God's salvation was too small. In in both cases, the gospel was great news, but it was great news that was going to come at a great cost. The Jewish person was going to have to admit that my very self needed to be rescued from exile. And the Gentile uh, was going to allow, would have to allow the gospel to change the very way they saw the world, bringing them into loving relationship with their enemies. Is this making sense? I can't read you all today. Is this making sense? Okay, okay. So you see how they receive this news, this, 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 these, these miracles with joy, they worship, but their, their instinct is probably a little limited at this point. Yeah, we're there? Okay, okay, okay. So Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. 
And that includes our enemies, and that includes ourselves. God's salvation includes our enemies. God's salvation includes ourselves. Uh, So there is this question then for us, which is, how much of the gospel have you and I accepted? If we look back in hindsight and we say, well, well, the Gentiles got it this much, and and the Jews, they got it this much, how much have we gotten the gospel? How big is the gospel for you? How much of the gospel have you accepted? Is that a fair question? Some of us are really good at pointing out the other people who need rescue. The other people who need salvation. Now, if God would just get a hold of that person, if God would just transform that person, and we forget, we forget, we forget that every single day we wake up desperately in need of the grace of God save ourselves. Some of us, we, 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 were, we were saved, quote-unquote, kind of a long time ago, right? And now we've gotten really good at kind of pointing out the other people who need to be saved. And we forget that every single morning we wake up just as dependent on the grace of God to transform our lives. How big is the gospel for you? How big is the gospel? How much of the gospel have you said yes to? Some of us, some of us are very grateful for our personal salvation. Some of us are, 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 are very cognizant of the fact that God has welcomed me, has brought me in, that I'm no longer an outsider. But has the gospel so transformed you that you are learning to love your enemies? Some of us, we're, we're grateful for what God has done for us. We have this strong sense that I'm an insider now. I'm a part of the family. But is the gospel pulling you out into relationship with people who you'd never be in relationship with otherwise? Is the gospel pulling you out to reconcile friendships, relationships with family members that have been broken? How big is the gospel for you? How much of the gospel have you said yes to? Because Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone, we are compelled every day to thank God for saving us. And we are compelled to demonstrate God's salvation to the world, including those we would rather avoid. This is what the Gentiles were going to find. But there were some, there were some who couldn't receive Jesus' miracles is good news. Gentiles and the Jews in the crowd that day, I think, probably both had this instinct to, to rejoice, to worship God. But we find, as the passage goes along, that there are some people who did not have that same instinct. And that brings us to our next point. I know you're on the edge of your seats. Say it with me. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. Is it getting in your head? in your head yet? So the last one, we focused on the word everyone. This time we focus on the word Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. We bump into now in our story the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if this were uh, a, a, a film, if this was a play, this is where the music would be like, dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. Actually, we've... Um, 
Jesus hasn't interacted with the Sadducees yet. This is his first interaction with the Sadducees, which makes sense because the Sadducees, this religious sect, they were centered in Jerusalem. Jesus hasn't really spent any time in Jerusalem yet. He's going to. He's going to interact with them at his trial before his crucifixion. Um, but he's interacted a lot with the Pharisees. Who are the Pharisees? They are sort of these self-appointed keepers of God's law. Uh, they were uh, the ones who believed that if we got everything right, if we had this strong outward appearance of uh, righteousness, then God would act on our behalf. This, in fact, is what would bring about the Messiah coming to rescue us from exile. We keep we keep God's laws perfectly, and we're going to add some laws to that just to be on the safe side, okay? And, and the Pharisees, they've been back and forth with Jesus a lot. We've seen this a lot already. The Sadducees, like I said, they're more of a political group. Uh, they're more of a priestly class, um, and, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees really, really don't like each other. They would never be in the same room together. They have comp- uh, just completely different visions of how God is going to act on behalf of of the nation of Israel, okay? They were oppo- these were like Republicans and Democrats, like being in the same room together. You, you, see, you get that? Um, and yet, in our story, they're together. In our story, they come to Jesus together. Why? Why? The enemy of my enemy is my, my friend. That's what's happening here. Jesus has become the enemy of both of these groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. So two groups of people who would never spend time together, who are on completely opposite ends of the spectrum, they are now in cahoots because they have a common enemy. Jesus. Jesus. They come to Jesus and they, uh, they demand a sign. Um, and this isn't the first time they've done this. Back in chapter 12, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, a teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, now the Pharisees especially, they have watched Jesus eat with, uh, or excuse me, they've watched Jesus liberate spiritually oppressed people. They've watched him heal people. They've watched him proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. So, so what's their beef? What's the problem with this? You would, you would think maybe that they would be accepting this as, as good news, but they've also watched Jesus eat with sinners, kind of defile this righteous way of approaching God. They've watched Jesus heal on the Sabbath, breaking these rules. They've watched Jesus basically undercut their entire system of gaining God's favor through outward acts of righteousness. Jesus is undermining their entire way of being good, their entire way of gaining God's favor, their entire religious system. Jesus is undermining it. So they are opposed to him. And I think we could say it this way. It's not just Jesus' teaching that has become a threat, but Jesus himself has become a threat that must be defeated. This is why the Pharisees have already been plotting, we've seen, to kill Jesus. It's not just a few random ideas. It's not just a few random acts of kindness that Jesus has done. Jesus himself has become a threat. And so I think they, they realize that that Jesus must either be completely rejected or accepted. These were, these were sort of the options presented by the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus must either be completely rejected. Why? Because he was undermining the entire religious system that they had built their lives on. Or, or he had to be accepted. And they weren't going the accepting route, were they? No. So Jesus himself was a threat. 
It wasn't, it wasn't just that Jesus was, was teaching some interesting new religious sayings, some spiritual principles. Jesus himself was the sign of God's salvation, and this sign had become a fundamental threat to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You see that? You see that? And so Jesus, uh, you know, as he does, he, he doesn't really fall into it, does he? And Jesus says, basically, look, you've, you've got plenty of evidence. He said, you guys are good at interpreting the signs. You can look at the sky. You know when it's going to rain. You know if it's going to be a hot day. You just saw me feed 4,000 people. <laughs> what does he do? He says, uh, you're not going to get any more signs. This is exactly what he does back in chapter 12. He says, you're not going to get any more signs except... Except what? What does he say? Huh? The sign of Jonah. Um, Jonah, everybody remember Jonah? The Old Testament Jewish prophet. Kind of out there. A racist. A serious racist. Um, so that when God comes to Jonah and says, I'm going to send you to the Ninevites, to a non-Jewish group of people, because of his racism, uh, Jonah says, <laughs> Not happening. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to talk to those people. I'm certainly not going to bring good news to them that you love them. Not going to happen. Um, and so Jonah tries to flee, gets swallowed by a fish for a few days, and then decides, I'm going to go to Nineveh. Right? Remember the story. Uh, now back in, our, uh, in chapter 12, Jesus elaborates a little bit, and he says, uh, he, kinda, he kind of explains a little bit what, what the sign of Jonah is. He says this back in chapter 12, a wicked and adulterous generation demands a sign. Sounds like our passage this, nor- this morning. Uh, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Here's the explanation. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What's he talking about? His death, right? Now, now people maybe don't totally get it yet, but Jesus is saying, look, the only sign that you Pharisees and Sadducees are going to get is when I die, when I'm buried. And then three days later when I'm resurrected. The sign of Jonah. Here's the thing. Even that is not going to be enough. Even that sign, even the very death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is not going to be enough. Tyler, let's put up the um, 1 Corinthians passage. Uh, The Apostle Paul kind of reflecting back over um, the life of Jesus, talking about um, uh, 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 fundamentally kind of what Christianity is about the gospel. He puts it this way. Jews demand signs. Sound familiar? Demand signs? Right? Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Oh, a sign. Everybody would get that, right? Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So, so, so here's what Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not saying, all right, I've saved one last awesome trick for you guys. I know you missed the, the, the miracles. I know you didn't get the teaching of the kingdom of heaven. I know they kind of went over your head. I know when I, you know, in, in, in liberating spiritually oppressed people, casting out demons, you, you're missing it. But I got, a, I got an awesome one for you. Check it out. I'm going to die three days in the ground. Then I'll be resurrected. You're going to totally get it after that. Clearly, that's not what Jesus is doing, right? Why? Because Paul says, Christ crucified, buried, resurrected, it's a stumbling block to many people. It's, n- it's actually not helpful. 
So Jesus is not saying, Jesus is not saying, I got one last great sign that's going to convince you that I'm actually the very salvation of God. It's not what he's doing. Think about Jonah for a minute. Jonah, he gets swallowed by a fish before he ever gets to Nineveh, right? So it's not like all the Ninevites were like hanging out around the sea and saw Jonah get swallowed and then spit up three days later, right? Nobody saw it. It wasn't, it wasn't a helpful sign. It didn't convince anybody. Even if Jonah would have walked into Nineveh and said, you never would have guessed what happened to me on the way here, who's going to believe that? Nobody, right? So understand that what Jesus is saying here, when he says a sign of Jonah, he's not saying, I've got one little bit of evidence that's going to convince you that I am the salvation of God. Because that's not what happened to Jonah either. What happened to Jonah? Why did Jonah get swallowed by a fish? To show how powerful God was? No, no. To convince Jonah that he had to do what God told him? No, no. Why did Jonah get swallowed by a fish? So that the mission of God would advance. That's it. God's mission included people who, Jonah said, no, 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 they're outsiders. God said, no, 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 I love them as well. They need to repent and turn to me as well. So Jonah, you're going to go. If if I have to use a fish to get you there, you're going to go. Why does Jonah get swallowed by a fish? So that the mission of God can advance. Yes? Why does Jesus die on the cross? Why is Jesus Christ laid under the ground for three days? Why is Jesus Christ resurrected victoriously from the grave? Why? Yes, so that the mission of God will advance. It's not a magic trick. It's not even a display of God's power, even though it does display God's power. Jesus Christ is crucified, is buried, is resurrected so that the rescue mission of God will advance. This is why we say as a church so often, nothing is going to obstruct God's mission. Nothing is going to obstruct God's mission. Certainly not you or me. So we can relax. Now, you might have to get swallowed by a fish, but... That was a joke. (laughs) Um, Jonah swallowed by a fish so that the mission of God can advance so that a people who've been far away from God can be welcomed into relationship with God. Jesus Christ is crucified, buried, and resurrected so that the mission of God, the rescue mission of God, liberating you and I from sin, death, and evil can be accomplished. Amen. This is the sign of Jonah. This is the sign of Jonah. And Paul says... Pharisees and Sadducees, you're still not going to get it. Why? Because Jesus himself is a threat to their entire way of, their, of, of having structured their world. These are, these are religiously powerful people. These are politically powerful people. And they understand that saying yes to Jesus means releasing all of that power. It means saying we got it wrong. What was up is actually down. This sucker is upside down. And they were not about to release their control and their power. And they understood that Jesus was a threat to that. So even his very death and resurrection would not convince all of them. Does that make sense? Uh, Where are we? Oh, so Jesus basically says, you want a sign? I am the sign. It's me. So what are you asking for when you ask for a sign? 
I know most of us in this room at some point say, God, if you could just give me a sign. What are we really asking for in that moment? What are we really getting at when we ask God for a sign? Is it, is it, is it, that, we, uh, is it that God hasn't been faithful enough to you? Is it that you need to know that God somehow still cares, is somehow still present? Or, or are you aware, like I have been aware, of the complete surrender that Jesus demands of us? What are we asking for when we ask for a sign? Pharisees, they don't want more evidence. They know, they know what Jesus is claiming. And they're rejecting it. What are you getting at when you're asking God for a sign? Is it that you just need one more piece of evidence? Is that, is that what you need? Is that what we need? Is that what I need? I just need one little, more, one little more piece of evidence. Or is it that you know that your self-righteousness and that your coping methods have to be completely dismantled by Jesus? Do you need more evidence, or do you just not want Jesus to take those things apart in you? What are we getting at when we're asking God for a sign? Has he not been good enough? Has he not been faithful enough? Paul says, even the very death and resurrection will not be sign enough. What are we getting at when we're asking for a sign? There was evidence all around the Pharisees and the Sadducees. People were getting healed left and right. Demons were getting cast out. The kingdom of God was being proclaimed. There was evidence all around, but it wasn't enough. Why? Because they couldn't accept that Jesus himself was the ultimate sign of salvation. It would mean letting go of everything else. Do you need a sign? Do you need a sign? Do you need a sign of God's presence? Do you need to know that God is here, is present with you? Can I tell you to look to the Son of God who was born in a feeding trough for you? Do you need a sign? Do you need a sign that God is not just looking at you in your pain, but is present with you in your pain? Look to the carpenter who was born into poverty, the child of an oppressed people. Do you need a sign that God has not and never will forget you? Do you need that sign? Look at the Christ who left heaven's glory, took on human flesh for you. Do you need a sign? Do you need a sign that your past does not define your future? Some of you need that sign? Look to the Savior who, while you were completely oblivious to the love of God, gave himself for your salvation, for your future. You need a sign that God is greater and more powerful than any of the fears that have come to define you, have come to freeze you up. 
Look to the one who is greater, who is more powerful than all of your fears, and in fact took on the source of every one of your fears and put him to death on the cross. Look to him. Jesus himself is the ultimate sign of our salvation. You need a sign that you are loved, that you are completely loved, completely accepted by God right now. Look at Jesus. Amen. This is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees completely miss, or maybe they just choose to reject it. That every sign they ever needed was present in Jesus in front of them. Do you need a sign? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Third point. Say it with me. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. Do you have this memorized yet? I'm going to test you at the end find this fascinating interaction towards the end of our passage today where Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. And uh, we're told, Matthew includes this detail at the beginning, that the disciples forgot the bread. Uh, I think this is the leftover bread, right? Because Matthew includes the details of how many baskets were left over? Seven. Lots of bread. These were big baskets. The word for basket is the same word that we find uh, later in Acts where Apostle Paul is lowered over a city wall in a basket, Okay. It's a lot of bread. Uh, and Matthew says, and they forgot it. Okay? Seems like a throwaway detail. The disciples forget the bread. Jesus then warns them against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples, in all of their glorious wisdom, I so love the disciples, uh, they think they're in trouble. Jesus says, be careful about the Yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Be on your guard against it. And the disciples here busted because he forgot the bread. Jesus clarifies that it's not about the bread. Actually, it's about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's a kind of cryptic conversation, right? It's like, it just seems like someone just needs to help these guys communicate a little bit better or something. Some very significant things actually happening here. The disciples' reaction to Jesus' initial warning, be on your guard, I think gives us an indication that they're still missing the essence of what Jesus is about. They're, mes- they're missing uh, the, the, the essence of Jesus' mission, uh, but they're also mis- misunderstanding how, how they're to respond and participate in that mission. Here's what I, here's what I mean. Jesus has um, promised the disciples that God's going to provide. Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus says, don't worry about anything. You remember that? Sermon on the Mount. It says, if God cares for the birds of the field, if God's looking out for, for the lilies, uh, providing for them, you certainly do not need to be concerned. I'm going to provide. You remember that. And then, and then, just to you know, make sure they get it, Jesus feeds 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. So it's not about the bread. God's going to take care of you, Jesus has said repeatedly. He's demonstrated. He's told them. And yet the disciples, they're like, forgot the bread. What are we going to do now? Like, Jesus has only so many miracles he can perform, right? 
Some of you think that. Some of you think that you're going to exhaust God's favor in your life. Some of you are like, I've, I've requested this so many times. God's got to be sick of hearing me come to him with this again. This is, this is the disciples' instinct in this moment, I think. Oh, we're in trouble. We forgot the bread. What if he can't do any more miracles? Or, or, what if his miracles are contingent on our behavior? What if we screwed something up now so that Jesus isn't going to or can't take care of us? It's a lie. But some of you, that's your first instinct in your relationship with God. I've done this, so God's not going to. I've not done this, so God is going to. It's a lie. It's a lie. Why? So the disciples. Uh, they, they miss Jesus' primary message. They, they, they're thinking this, is, this has something to do about the bread, but here's the thing. The miracles, the bread, the provision, the, the, the blind being able to see, the lame being able to walk, these are not, not Jesus' primary mission. We already said this. These are but evidence of God's primary mission. Uh, the, 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 the Jewish expectation, the Jewish hope, was that when the Messiah came, when God came... People could walk again. People could see again, right? But that wasn't the end of the story, was it? Simply evidence of God's rescue coming, of exile being defeated, right? So it's not about the bread. It's not even about being able to see again. As good as those things are, they are but evidence of God's much larger mission of what? Salvation for the world. Redeeming and restoring the world bringing outsiders in, reconciling enemies with one another, saving us into God's family. This is Jesus' mission. And the disciples are like, oh, we forgot the bread. It's not about the bread. It's so much bigger, Jesus is saying, than the bread. So the disciples, they miss, they, they're still misinterpreting Jesus' primary mission, but they're also misunderstanding their role in this mission. They're afraid that they're somehow able to sidetrack the mission of God. We forgot it, so God's not going to. We forgot it, so Jesus can't. No! This is the sign of Jonah. Jonah, you're going to Nineveh one way or another. This is the resurrection, God's mission being carried forward. Amen. So they're still still missing some pieces here. So Jesus responds, basically, in my paraphrase, it's not about the bread, you dummies. It's not about the bread. It's as if Jesus is saying, do you still think my mission is only about these miracles? It's so much bigger. The miracles, the leftover bread that you forgot, they're simply, simply, simply evidence of God's coming kingdom. And the bread is great, and the miracles are great, of course, they are evidence of God's massive mission for the world. It's as if Jesus is asking them, do you still think my mission is dependent on you doing everything right? Seriously? Now you sound like the Pharisees. No, my mission, Jesus might say, is advancing, 
It is advancing. And you, disciples, get to come along. You, disciples, get to have a front row seat. You, disciples, get to participate in what I'm already going to do. So what is Jesus warning them about? If it's not about the bread, what's it about? Jesus says it's the yeast. It's the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And what is that yeast? I think we could summarize it by just saying it's anything that undermines and opposes Jesus and his mission. Anything that undermines and opposes Jesus and his mission. This is what they've been doing, right, at every turn. Opposing Jesus, undermining Jesus, trying to kill Jesus. Anything that undermines Jesus and his mission this is, what, this is what we're getting at here, the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Why is this so important? It's not because the Sadducees, the Pharisees, want to stop Jesus from doing some miracles. It's not because they want to stop him from talking about God. If that's all Jesus was doing, you think they would care about him? No, no, no. They, they, they wouldn't pay him any mind. But, because it's so much bigger, because Jesus is actually undermining their entire way of understanding the world and understanding their own righteousness, because Jesus himself will be taking away their false power to replace it with God's power, they're opposed to Jesus. They're undermining Jesus and and his message, his mission of salvation. So this isn't about the bread. It's not even about the miracles. And this is what the Sadducees and the Pharisees understand that I don't think the disciples get yet. This is about a new kingdom with a new king. This is about a new ruler, a new lord who demands allegiance and submission. This is about recreating everything, restoring all things under a new king. I don't think the the disciples get this yet, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they do, and so they oppose it. They reject it. You see this. So if the disciples, look, if the disciples are undermined by the Pharisees' yeast, think about what's at stake. Their very salvation. You see that? If the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees permeates the disciples, what's at stake? Their very salvation. Why? Because they're opposed to Jesus. They're opposed to Jesus' mission of salvation. So if the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees permeates the disciples, it's their very salvation at stake. It's their participation in God's mission that's at stake. You see why Jesus says you've got to be on your guard. You've got to take this seriously. You've got to watch out. This is serious. This is serious. So we don't have, I don't think, any Sadducees running around today, right? Have you seen one? I don't know what you'd look for. (laughs) Or Pharisees, for that matter. So what, what's the yeast that we ought to be aware of? Right? Well, if, if Jesus were talking to us today, if he said, look, you, you need to watch out for this yeast because it will actually undermine your salvation. It will, actually, it will actually remove you from participating in the very mission of God. What would Jesus say to us today? Let me suggest a few different things. The benign, churchy yeast. Anybody? Churchy yeast? That actually inoculates our soul to the gospel of Jesus. Anybody? Churchy yeast? You know what I'm talking about. If you don't, be glad. How about the nice religious teacher yeast? Right? 
that respects some of what Jesus says but doesn't actually require allegiance to a new king. Anybody had that conversation with somebody? Jesus, you got some good things to say. Yeast. How about the American dream yeast that places status, accomplishments, and affluence before worshiping a homeless savior? How about the yeast of institutional racism or subtle ethnocentrism or the culturally accepted sexism yeast that undermines the radical reconciliation of the gospel? How about the yeast of our pride, of my pride, that keeps me from confessing sins regularly and receiving unmerited forgiveness? Can you, can, you, can you imagine this? Can you picture this yeast? Let me ask you this. What is it that is undermining the very message of Jesus in your life? Can you ask that question? Can you pray about that question? What are the things that have crept into your soul that are actually undercutting the very salvation message of Jesus? Where, where is this yeast permeating you? That's like, is that on? Yeah, is that okay? That's like a Na- NASCAR pit stop to change the wheels thing. That was impressive, Mitch. Nice job. I don't know what the record is, but that was quick. Nice job. Where is yeast present in your life? What is permeating your soul? What is stealing your love of of Christ? What is stealing your passion for the very mission of God? What what, What are you placing before your complete allegiance to this new king? Where is this yeast present in your life? Pay attention over the next few weeks as we lead up to Easter. At time, like I said before, that can be anxious for some of us. Pay attention when the anxiety starts to surface. Where's that coming from? Where's there this yeast present in my life that I'm not able to fully rest in the acceptance of Christ? That I can't participate in God's mission, even in the busyness. Can you do that? Candace can do it. Anybody else? Yes. Thank you, Darius. What is the yeast that we guard against? It's anything that undermines the fact that Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. Let's put that phrase up there just one last time, Tyler. I want you guys to say this with me. I want you to walk out with this on your tongue. Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone. For everyone. For everyone. So this means we wake up tomorrow morning, we are aware of our deep need for the grace of God. God's salvation is for us. We wake up tomorrow morning and we're aware that there are relationships that need to be reconciled, that there are enemies, both specific and cultural enemies, that we're going to be pulled into because of the gospel of Jesus. Because why? Jesus' salvation is for everyone. Right? We're going to wake up, we're going to wake up with a sense that Jesus himself is all the sign we ever need that God's salvation is for everyone. 
We don't need more evidence. We don't need little, little, more, more arguments. We don't need, like, you know, open your Bible and put your finger at the exact right place or whatever sign you think would be so helpful. Jesus himself, as he adv- advances the mission of God, is all the sign of God's salvation that we will ever get and ever need. Amen? We'll be aware that it's actually salvation of God's world, of God's creation that is at stake. That Jesus' mission, it's not just some bread. It's not just to make us happy. It's not just to match us up with the perfect spouse one day. It's so much bigger than that. And like the disciples, maybe, maybe, maybe we're not going to miss that. Maybe we're not going to sit in the boat and go, oh, I got it wrong, so Jesus can't, or so I don't get to be a part of this anymore. Now, maybe we'll understand that the mission of God is advancing. This is the sign of Jonah, Jesus Christ, dead, buried, resurrected. The mission of God is advancing, and you and I, we have been invited to participate with that. Is that good news to you? Whatever is on your mind right now, whatever happened to you last week, whatever you did to somebody last week, you are still invited to participate in the mission of God. Is that good news? Yes. Um, okay, let me, let me wrap up with these two, two thoughts. Two thoughts. Uh, you cannot walk out of here feeling guilty today. If anybody's feeling guilty, stop it. If anybody's sinking down in their chair, like, oh, I've been asking for signs, I'm such a bad person. No, stop it. Stop it. You walk out of here a person who's received the mercy of God and the grace of God. Here's what Paul says. It's not just that that Jesus underwent the sign of Jonah, was crucified, dead, and resurrected. What does Paul say? Your life, too, in Christ. Yes? crucified, buried, resurrected. So you and I walk out of here this morning. Zach, you can go ahead and come on up. We walk out of here this morning, not people who go, okay, I gotta really work on it this week. I gotta really try harder this week. I gotta really not forget that sentence because that sentence, that's gonna remind me. No, this is what the disciples do, right? It's not about the bread. What will compel you this week to live into this? What will compel you? The reality that in Jesus, the old life is gone. The reality that in Jesus, new life is resurrected and is present in you now. Now. Not tomorrow, not Sunday, not when you get your act together. Now. The beauty of the gospel is all that will compel you to live into this this week. If it's anything else, if you walk out of here thinking, I'm going to try harder, I'm feeling guilty about this, I give you a day, tops. Where you're back in the boat with the disciples going, oh, I forgot the bread. What will compel us to live into this is not trying harder, is not doing better next time, is not remembering the right things. It's the, it's the powerful reality that your old life is gone. And that in you, Jesus is resurrecting new life. 
the very power, we've said this before, that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is present here now in you. This is what compels us, this beautiful vision of who God is calling us to be. It's not guilt that will compel you to change. It's not guilt that will compel you to live into this. It's what? Grace, beauty, the gospel. Amen? Amen? Here's the last thing I want to say. How do we know if this is happening in our church? How do we know if this is our reality? How do we know if for us, Jesus is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for everyone? How do we know if it's happening? Look at the beginning of this passage. What's happening? Evidence of the kingdom of God. Jesus has compassion from the guts. Not a choice, I should have compassion. I should feel like this. I should care. Coming up from the inside. Will we be a compassionate people? Will we exhibit compassion for this neighborhood, for this school, for those in our community groups? Will compassion be what we're known for? Evidence of God's salvation at work in us. What's happening? Blind people can see. Lame people can walk. What's the people's lives are being restored? Yes? People's lives are being restored. How do we know if this is happening? Are people's lives being restored in our church? Would the neighborhood miss us if our church was taken away? This is evidence. This is the evidence of whether this is happening for us or not. Are we being drawn into relationships with people we wouldn't be in relationship otherwise? Are we being reconciled in ways that we wouldn't be reconciled otherwise? This is the evidence that for us, Jesus Christ alone is the ultimate sign of God's salvation for us and for the world. Amen? Let me pray for you. Pray for me. Uh, Lord Jesus, we... um, We we need you to do this work in our lives. We need you to be the only sign that matters in our lives. We need you to be the only thing, Lord Jesus, that we look to for our salvation. And so in this moment, church, just take a minute, please. Take a minute and reflect. Take a minute and reflect. Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, convict our hearts now. Church, reflect for a moment. Where is the yeast present? Where is God's mission of salvation being undermined in my life? be honest church and ask that and look at that Holy Spirit open up the eyes of our hearts Jesus what has come between you and your first love 
what has undermined the potency and the power of the gospel in your life? What is stealing away your secure identity in Jesus Christ? Reveal our hearts to ourselves in a way that only you can. Search our hearts. We don't end there. We never end there. We never end there. God, we bring these things to you now. God, we drag these things up. We don't want to admit that they're present. We don't want to acknowledge them. We don't want to look at sin in our lives that we've had to look at over and over again. But we do it now, God. We bring it before you now. We place it before you now. We know that you're not surprised. We know that there's not anything here. There's not any yeast here that you are not aware of already. And so, Jesus, we, 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 we bring these things now that you've, you've brought to mind. We bring them before you. And we ask, would you take them from us now? God, if you, can, if you can make blind people see, you can take these things from us now. If you can make lame people walk, you can take these things from us now. If you can make crippled people whole, you can take these things from us now. So we confess to you these areas of sin. We confess to you these places where we've allowed this yeast to undermine your gospel in our lives. We confess, Lord. We apologize to you. We ask your forgiveness, God. God, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us. We claim as true the scriptures that over and over again in so many different ways tell us that as soon, as soon, as soon as we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. And so again, God, we we will never be compelled by guilt. So take away the guilt now. Replace it with freedom. Replace it with freedom. Replace it with freedom. We have been set free for freedom's sake in Jesus. I pray for my sisters and brothers this morning who have had things brought to mind that are not going away, that they have struggled with for days, for months, for years. Jesus, I pray that you would give them the courage to bring these things to to those who can support them. Holy Spirit, now now compel women and men uh, today and this week to bring these things to trusted family members, to people in their community group, to a trusted friend who they can confess these things to. 
who they can invite somebody into walking alongside them, where they realize uh, the very gospel is being undercut in my life in these areas. I need you to walk beside me here. I need you to hold me accountable here. I need you to speak the gospel and grace into my life here. Undoubtedly, there are some in our church, Lord, who need to take that step this week, and I pray that you would give them the courage to do it. To do it. But now we simply receive your forgiveness, Lord God. We simply receive your forgiveness, and we ask that you would be conforming us more and more into people who can live into the reality that you, Jesus Christ, are the ultimate sign of salvation for us, for our church, and for the world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Church, I'm just going to pray over us and I'm going to invite you to to maybe leave the auditorium quietly this morning. Uh, Spend some time hanging out in the back. Don't rush off. Um, Let us know if you can help out purchasing those stalls for the school. We're going to see you back here next week, 1030. If you have children, 11 o'clock for the road to Bethlehem. Let me pray over you now, church. Some of you might want to stay around and just spend some more time in quiet prayer or seek out one of our prayer team members or myself for some prayer. So now, God, we ask that you send us forth forth as, as, as free people. People who have been given the only sign of our salvation that we will ever need. People who have been given the only sign that you are at work in our world that we will ever need. People who have been given the only sign that we will ever need, that we have been given a hope and a future. So send us out worshiping the God of the universe for what you have already accomplished in Jesus, for what you have yet to accomplish in our lives, and for what you one day will accomplish when you return and restore all things. Name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we pray these things. Amen.